This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. Sometimes politics is a family affair. Since the state legislature began, there have been 47 children of state lawmakers who also ended up serving in the state legislature. Five current California lawmakers have a parent who also served in the state legislature. In the assembly, there's the Ramblas, the Burks, the Holdens, and the Mullins. I'm Bob Shaleen with Look West. On this episode, we're going to hear from current assembly speaker pro tem Kevin Mullen. His dad, Gene, represented the same South San Francisco district from 2002 to 2008. The Mullen family has been part of the South San Francisco community for almost 100 years. They know the neighborhood, and Kevin and Gene also know the state capitol. Let's listen in as they talk about their unique perspective on South San Francisco and the state legislature over the years. My guest across the table is my father, former assembly member, former city council member here in our hometown of South San Francisco, Gene Mullen. And we are um, celebrating Youth in Government Day here in South San Francisco, which is a program that my father started where young people from our local high schools here in the city shadow uh, local government uh, counterparts and learn all of the inner workings of local government. And um, uh, Dad, you were a government and civics teacher mostly for the 32 years you were at South San Francisco High School. Did you teach another kind of a course besides civics and government? When you're a, uh, a high school teacher, you kind of have uh, a wide expanse of, of different subjects. I taught uh, English. I have an English minor from uh, college. Uh, I taught economics. Uh, I taught U.S. history, uh, world history. Uh, I taught PE a little bit because I was a coach for almost 25 years. I taught a few classes PE. But by and large, uh, social studies. Uh, I'm a poli-sci major from college and uh, I would say at least 25 years of the 32 were teaching uh, government, which is the kind of the capstone course for seniors in high school. It's a required to graduate course. And so I was always the last barrier to walking across the stage. So it gave me a little control over the kids. Yeah. So you were a coach, basketball coach, the varsity coach at South City High School. Correct. Um, When you look back on your career, was that, uh, talk about how sort of rewarding that was to participate both on the athletic side, but also the classroom side, and beyond sort of generating some memories, um, what what did that experience on the athletic side, uh, how did that inform what you did in the classroom, if at all? Yeah, that's, a, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, a lot of Coaches at, at all levels are coaches first and teachers second. In my case, I was a teacher who wound up as a coach. And so teaching was sort of the, the, the primary motivation. I'd always played athletics and uh, was interested. And when I interviewed, one of the requests was, uh, would I have the ability to coach basketball if I got the job? And so I interviewed at several, in fact, I I did my student teaching in San Francisco and was offered a job and a coaching job there. But my aunt had been a longtime employee in South San Francisco. She said, why don't you come down and interview there? You might find it interesting. So I did. 
And uh, I interviewed with the principal at the time of South San Francisco High School, Louis Bagnell, and he asked, first question he asked was, can you coach? Because finding coaches then, as now, uh, is difficult. And I said, sure, I would have said yes to anything. He said, if I, can you do the cheerleaders and can you uh, run the dance company? I probably would have said yes because uh, I wanted to get a job. Now, My, you, wanted to be a, you wanted to be a lawyer, though. I did, a, I did a year of education. law school at night and worked full-time during the day, and the grind was too much. Uh, and I thought, I don't know if I want to be, if I want to continue to do this. I always, in the back of my mind, had a thought about being a teacher. And so um, after a year of law school, I, I kind of had that decision-making time. Am I going to continue? And in, in, it was just so hard, five nights a week in, in law school and five nights a week working full-time in the daytime. It was just too much. So I could do uh, education school and still work full-time. It was less of a uh, uh, difficulty at night. And there was an immediacy. Back in the 60s, there was a need for teachers. It was, it was very competitive. It's like it is now. Uh, you could pretty much, if you could get your credential, you could find a job. And so that was sort of the motivation. So you choose South San Francisco. Well, more more to the point, South San Francisco chooses you in a way, but you're able to buy a home in this middle-class community. For those listening around the state who aren't familiar with South San Francisco, who hear San Francisco and think San Francisco, describe this community for our listeners around the state. Sure. South San Francisco, uh, we have a, a, a motto that's on what we call Sign Hill. It says, South San Francisco, the industrial city, which is really what it had been uh, prior to the advent of the biosciences coming into our community in the mid-70s. It was a industrial, working-class, blue-collar community of about well, 35 or 40,000 people. Uh, when we moved down here, we rented a house for three years, and then we bought a house two doors up the street. We made the move in my daughter's little red wagon. And uh, we moved into that house uh, 50 years ago. It was going to be our starter house. Uh, we paid less than $28,000 for it, which still was a stretch. I think I was earning maybe 13000 a year at that time, something in that neighborhood. So, But it was still within reason. And uh, so we were able to purchase in a community. And most of my colleagues uh, in the school district lived locally. A lot of them were preceding graduates from the schools. And so there's a real sense of community that uh, unfortunately to a great degree is lost as the uh, home prices have spiraled well beyond the ability of most uh, classroom teachers and administrators to actually live in a community where they teach. Right. So I won't dwell on this, but um, take us back to the 1970s when you were getting started here in this community. Before the biotechnology uh, industry discovered South City. Right. Uh, what was this community like economically? I mean, it's the industrial city. Right. And still is. But what was happening economically here in this community? And what was the sort of, uh, what were the prospects for this community before Genentech founded, really founded an industry right, right here in yeah. our town? We were, we were I think... Um, a West Coast version of the Rust Belt. We had a large industrial area that was uh, going to seed. Uh, 
Uh, we had lost a lot of the industries that uh, had proliferated during the war and immediately after. Uh, we were an ethnic community, mostly Italians, uh, with uh, some Hispanic population, but primarily an Italian community. Uh, when I say blue-collar, blue working class, I mean, it really was, uh, that was the, the characteristics of the community as a whole. And we're in the shadow of SFO, so there were lots of airport workers, we for had, example, that we lived had, in South I, I believe that United Airlines, which had its maintenance base, we had a lot of mechanics that worked there. Uh, I think that uh, United Airlines and the airport as a whole was the primary employer for our community. United Airlines, by the way, subsequently moved their maintenance facility out of uh, the area, and that cost us a lot of jobs at that time. So we had, we had the prospects were a little dim, frankly, but it was a very strong community with a long history, and uh, it was a very welcoming community. Uh, now, of course, I've lived here for 50 years. I'm still a bit of a newcomer to some of the old-timers, but... Uh, <laughs> It is has uh, it, become much more ethnically diverse as time has passed, and uh, but it's a great place to live. We our reputation was not um, stellar in in the Bay Area communities. I think of the fifty Bay Area communities, we were ranked forty seventh, something of that nature. Uh, that was before the biotech bioscience established itself. We obviously become gentrified to a great degree since then but uh, I felt very comfortable the kids uh, there's a great involvement of parents in the in the schools but like uh, almost like a tradition that the parents said we give it we give our kids to you we're not going to interfere with what you do we're going to trust that you're going to do good a good job with them and uh, that that made it a very satisfying career. You didn't have to battle parents. They were pretty supportive all the way through. And your father, my grandfather, did what for a living? He was a, a machinist, um, and he worked uh, in both the breweries initially and then uh, with Phillips and Van Orden's world's largest printing company, and he became the plant superintendent of that. And so he was a blue-collar worker. My my. Your great-grandfather, my grandfather, was a blacksmith in South San Francisco, by the way. I have to say that that was one of the motivations, uh, the fact that my grandfather and his family, including my father and, and his brothers and sister, moved into South San Francisco in 1913. And then my aunt, when they moved to San Francisco in 1926, my aunt stayed. She was a teacher and a principal. And when she retired, I came here. So we've had a presence either working or living in a community for over 100 years now. And I take a little pride in that. I mean, it makes me really feel as though this is my hometown and uh, I'm zealously guarding its reputation. And your mom, my nana, what did she do for a living? Uh, my mother uh, graduated from Commerce High School at age 15. She skipped, back in those days, you could skip grades uh, routinely. Uh, she went to work at, at age 15 as a secretary to uh, one of the developers, uh, one of the building builders and designers of the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, worked as a secretary for, uh, until she married my father when she was 23. And she became a homemaker to my sister and me, and uh, in many ways, very literate person. She really installed uh, a love of reading and of education with us, and uh, 
I think uh, we owe our whatever success to both of them, but to her as being that guiding force there all the time. So 32-year teacher and coach in South San Francisco, you saw this community become the biotechnology capital of the world, 200-plus biotechnology companies. Um, you are participating in local commissions, but you don't run for office until your mid-50s. Do looking back, uh, having uh, the perspective of time, looking back on your career, you know, why didn't you run for office in your 30s or 40s? Why did you wait till uh, the, the later part of your career? Well, I had children in the home. Uh, I was teaching and I was coaching two or three seasons, which meant that it was a full day. And then during the summertime, uh, given the fact that teachers don't make a lot of money, even then, while we were more competitive, it was still a grind. Uh, your mother, my wife, did not work out of the house, so I was the sole income. And so each summer I would work different jobs, and uh, <clears throat> I really I don't think ever had the time to consider uh, a political career. Now, if I look back on it, uh, I probably if I had a do-over, would probably have looked at elective office a little sooner than I did. But uh, as it turned out, it was just perfect, I, an ideal situation for me. So I joke around that um, I've been involved in politics longer than my father, uh, which is not technically accurate. But I was an aide to Jackie Spear when she was a state assemblywoman. When my father came in uh, to, to meet with her, in advance of his city council race. So I was already a political aide and staffer while he was getting ready to be a first-time candidate. Uh, so I try to hold that over him. The truth is he's been involved uh, you know, civically in the, in the 70s. But I would say really growing up uh, the son of a civics teacher and seeing his students get involved directly in local government, that really did open up. Uh, my eyes to the possibility of government service. The truth is I wanted to go in the media. I wanted to be a journalist uh, here in the Bay Area. That's what I studied in college and, and, and sort of fell into uh, democratic politics uh, in a way. But there's no question that having grown up the son of a government teacher uh, eventually would steer me in that direction. And then seeing his experience on the city council. And the reality is it made it very accessible um, having known my father, that he could be on the city council and become a mayor. And I was his campaign manager for the state assembly and felt very invested in his success uh, in Sacramento. I think that uh, made it pretty clear to me that um, uh, the barrier is not something that is uh, insurmountable, that I could probably pursue that as well. But I'm also very mindful of the advantages that I had having my father as a mentor and having Jackie Spears as a mentor. And not everybody clearly has those kinds of opportunities. So in a way, I, I have great respect for my colleagues who don't have the advantages that I had in getting involved politically and who come from across the state of California, um, from uh, families uh, without the advantages that mine. And for, those, uh, for my colleagues to wind up in Sacramento, uh, having not had some of those political advantages is really pretty remarkable. And I have great respect for uh, my colleagues who have overcome 
much more than I have to to make it to Sacramento. It's interesting. I want to add, uh, when I was teaching government in the 90s, Jackie Spear had her office in South San Francisco within walking distance of the school. And Quentin Kopp, the state senator, had his offices also in South San Francisco and also within walking distance. So it was my practice to take each class and to go to Jackie's office, we'd walk across the football field by Bimbo Bakery and into and, and have her or her staff, usually her staff because uh, she was in Sacramento most of the time, but get an, a hands-on experience. And then we'd go to, to Quentin Kopp's office. And in fact, as it turned out, my first district director had worked for Quentin Kopp, and that's where I met her at the time. So we had generations of kids actually in the offices and we all we went to Sacramento too from time to time, but this was within well one class period you could do it, uh, and we had courts in South San Francisco. We could walk to the courts, and that took two periods, so I had to kind of maneuver that. But we again we'd go up and uh, sit in the courts, so it was a great experience for them and for me because um, that's how I got to know Jackie closely. Uh, even though Kevin had worked for her, I mean I really didn't know her. And it was when I went in to ask her for her endorsement for city council that she said, well, why don't you think about running for the state assembly? So that was that led to my uh, spending a couple days following her again. And, and she did endorse me for city council. And she's been a, a mentoress to both Kevin and to me over the years. Uh, she's been terrific. So you're a city council member, mayor. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier uh, about your election to the State Assembly. You were chair of the Education Committee in the Assembly. Um, just one question about our K-12 system and your perspective as both a teacher in the classroom but also as a policymaker in Sacramento. What presents the biggest hurdle or challenge to building the kind of a K-12 system that we want for our young people across the state? Well, it's important to remember that, uh, that California is like a nation state. You know, 40 million people, we have 6.3 million youngsters in K-12 education, so it's a huge system. Uh, I was there, you know, I was in the assembly from 2008, 2002 to 2008 in the throes of an economic disaster, so uh, we, were, we were always trying to figure out ways to to make, make, make payday, so to speak. Uh, in terms of the overall uh, single cure for education, it would be to equalize funding. Uh, in California, about uh, of the more than 1,000 school districts, the, the preponderance of them are state funded. They get uh, money from the state and uh, that constitutes, uh, I'm not sure of the exact amount, but something between eight and $10,000 per student per year. The, the balance of the school districts are what we call uh, revenue limit districts. They self-fund. And so you find dramatic differences in how much money is allocated to each student based on the economic background of the community in which those schools are found. So the short answer is, we spend uh, huge amounts of money by proportionally in some school districts 
and dramatically less than others. And usually the ones that spend less are those that don't have the economic resources. So they've got a double whammy. They don't have as much money and they have uh, kids of a background that uh, are not gonna receive as much support in the homes as those from the high wealth districts. So how you go about doing that is the trick. Uh, the local control funding formula that, that Governor Brown started makes a stab at that. And that's good, and, and don't think that hasn't made a difference. But it's still woefully short of the inequities we find in, in funding. And, and then, you know, you take the natural extension of that is if you are a, a less funded district, it means your staff is going to be paid less. And if the staff happens to be in proximity to other districts which higher, with higher income, you're going to have a high turnover. And so you get that, the, the uh, the shift of personnel, and so you don't have the stability uh, that is essential, I think, in, in the continuity that makes education uh, more effective. And then you, you know, toss in, if you want, the high cost of housing, which uh, exacerbates the turnover you find in lower paid districts, and it really becomes a challenge. Not one you shouldn't accept, but one that, that is not, that has no easy fixes. So I think, the funding and the turnover in personnel were the two major issues I faced as, uh, as a, the education chair. So back on your journey from the classroom to the Capitol, Mr. Mullen goes to Sacramento. Right. So how did I watch the... that movie every few weeks <laughs> just to recharge my batteries. Right. So how did the world of Sacramento partisan politics compare with the sort of idealized notion of government that I'm sure you probably tried to instill in the young people that came to right. the, the 10,000 right. some 13,000 13,000 yeah. uh, students that came through your classroom yeah. over 30 plus years well I, I did not want to idealize uh, government however I didn't want to be cynical about it because cynicism about government is rampant and it was rampant even when I started in the uh, in the 60s, and so I wanted to make it, I think, a more rational uh, view of it. Uh, was it different when I went to the Capitol? To a degree, but, but part of my career is I spent uh, 13 years uh, teaching a summer program at, at Cal State Sacramento and, and t doing teacher training, and as part of that, we would spend time in the Capitol, so I had started doing that and uh, in, in my late 80s, going to Sacramento in the, in the summertime. And so I was, uh, I'd sat in, sat in on a lot of committee hearings and uh, kind of had a, a, a more, I guess, uh, realistic view. But I will say this, I was always kind of in awe of the elected officials. I mean, it just felt, if you saw one walking down the, the, uh, the corridor, you go, oh, gee, there's an elected official. And so I was a little bit awestruck, even though I was in my 60s, uh, about people who went through the process to actually get there. And when I became an elected official, I appreciated the fact that it's a very small group of people that are able to be decision makers for uh, the nation state of California. I never ever took anything for granted that it was, a, was an honor to be there. And uh, it was a responsibility as well. So we heard from 
young people earlier today and Youth in Government Day here in South San Francisco, and you have spent considerable time uh, encouraging young people to get involved in not even so much politics, but at least opening their world to the, the prospects of public service and civic engagement. And as we know, there's all sorts of paths to, to serving a community. But do you worry about how our young people perceive politics? Even the word politics sometimes can be uh, something of a bad word to, to people and a negative just on, on mention. And democratic engagement, small d democratic engagement, um, by, by witnessing some of the div divisiveness we see, mostly on the federal level. Uh, I like to c compare our relative uh, civility in Sacramento to some of the stuff we see on the, on the national level. But th those are uh, what happens on the federal level, national level, is where a lot of people, young people, get their messages about right. what it's like to be involved in political life. Um, what, what is an, uh, antidote to that negativity and that divisiveness? And does that concern you as somebody who's been an observer yeah. for, uh, decades? Yeah, it, it does concern me. Uh, it, I think the advent of, of the pervasiveness of social media has, uh, and this is, again, when I retired in 1999 from the classroom, uh, social media really didn't exist. And so the the 24-news uh, cycle was starting to take place, but you could still have uh, uh, reasonable conversations. Uh, the newspapers meant more now than they, then than they do now. Uh, and so I think uh, the role of a teacher was greater at that time because it was one of a relatively small... Uh, group of influences on on young people. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, I didn't want to ever be cynical because cynicism was starting to grow. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I also taught history over the years, and so there were many cynical periods in our history, and this the, it's cyclical. But I could see it coming uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Watergate uh, sort of turned a lot of kids off to politics. But I think you have to be uh, a voice of reason, and that is that it is a system. Uh, the system is geared to the quality of people that are, operate the system, and the quality of people are generated by who, who, who votes, who supports them. Uh, we did a lot of uh, activities that took kids actually out of the, out of the classroom uh, we did candidates' fairs where I would require my seniors to work two hours in, in a candidate of their choice. And we would bring all of the offices that were being contested into the school. We would have them interviewed. We would have them debate. And then the kids would sign up to get them actively involved, even if it was stuffing envelopes or walking precincts. But they were required to do that. Now, if, they had, if there was a pushback, you know, there was an alternative assignment. But all the kids with rare exception, did their two hours with their candidate to get a sort of a hands-on feel. Uh, I would take my kids to uh, city council meetings, require them to go, and I would go with them. But contrary to what you see now, I would bring in a city council member or a staff person before the meeting, and we would go over the agenda. 
so that the kids, when they would see the council meeting or the board of supervisors, they would know what the issues were, at least to the degree that they'd be able to follow. I can remember um, being in, in venues where kids would come in and they'd walk out and say, that was the most boring thing I ever saw, never going back, because it was a mystery. They, didn't, they weren't prepared for what they were going to see. And so we did, we did a lot of pre-preparation so that it had some meaning for them when, uh, when they actually went to whether the Board of Supervisors, whether it was the criminal courts, the civil, I mean, we were out of the classroom more than we were in the classroom, which I think made the kids happy. I know it made the <laughs> teacher happy. So what is a day in the life of Gene Mullen in 2019? Well, I'm working on a civic education project for the, uh, the San Mateo County Office of Education uh, in terms of how to generate more civic participation in the schools. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm working on that as a project. Uh, I'm using some of the experiences I had as a teacher to try to infuse those into whatever our policy is going to be. Uh, I've worked with both our local county as well as uh, Sacramento County in developing, uh, developing programs for that. I'm on, uh, I'm on the board of uh, Seton Medical Center, uh, which we're just coming out of bankruptcy and it's been sold to a new operator. I'm on the board of the local museum, historical museum. I'm on the board of uh, hip housing to generate more housing activity. I'm on the board of the library Bond Foundation to build a new library. And most of the time I spend walking the dog that used to be <laughs> yours that now spends a lot of time in my house since you now have 15-month-old sons. Thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. um, so your civic engagement clearly continues. Right. Uh, as you look back on, on your life and career, what are you most proud of? Um. Well, I'm proud of my family. My, my children have both been very successful. My grandkids are successful. Uh, I think I had a successful career. Uh, I remember when I first went to Sacramento uh, and we hired staff, they said, now what do you want to be known for after you leave after six years? And I said, I want to be known for consistency. I want to make sure that uh, when I go up there, I'm going to be there all the time. And so when I left uh, the the day I left, uh, somebody called me the Cal Ripken of the California Assembly. I never missed a floor session. I never missed a committee hearing. And in fact, uh, I stood in or sat in for many other members who asked me to substitute for them on other committees. And it got to the point where toward the end, I said, I wonder if I can actually sit in on every committee. I think there were 29 at the time. Well, I didn't make all 29, but, uh, but I made a lot of them. So I I never embarrassed my constituents, always were, was prepared and, uh, and looked back with fondness on that. But again, uh, I have no regrets with the way my career went and uh, still out there trying to catch the elusive rainbow trout at, <laughs> at Tioga Pass in Yosemite. <laughs> I look forward to joining you. Thanks a lot, Dad. You're welcome. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And when you think of California and politics, remember to look west. Look west.